brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. It's a strange world after all, people. Thanks for tuning in. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I have long wondered just how tightly controlled our reality could be. We know that more exotic and advantageous energy sources have been suppressed by oil men for their own profits, and profits themselves are a fictitious illusion of wealth generated by the green paper they print. Our media definitely keeps us fearful, anxious, and pacified when we're not on the hamster wheel of life, to the point that even if we were in some sort of Truman Show simulation, I'm not sure the masses would even be inquisitive enough to uncover it. But a conversation about the degree of control definitely needs to include questions about the nature of consciousness, the suppressed power of the individual, and the true history of humanity that they don't want us to know. And if you truly, deeply digest the material left by the ancient world, it seems that they have at least tried to preserve the answers to these questions and many more. In fact, maybe the highly advanced, energy-abundant, altruistic global utopia of oneness we sometimes dream of our engineered origins, and the cycles of catastrophe we may be vulnerable to are several of the big secrets our ancestors tried to tell us about and what the system worked so hard to make sure we never discover. Well, these are some of the things I've learned from the work of today's guest Matthew LaCroix, an impressive guy who's dedicated himself to an expertise in reconstructing the stories left on the ancient clay tablets we do still have and connecting the fractured dots of the human story. He's best known for his books The Illusion of Us and The Stage of Time, as well as his reconstructed 200,000-year timeline of human civilization, all which can be learned about at thestageoftime.com. He's also the man behind the Great Mastermind Discussions podcast, and I know this is going to be a good time, the Lost History Reconstructor, Cuneiform Tablet Teacher, and Anunnaki Educator, Matthew LaCroix. Welcome to the Higher Side. Greg, it's great to be here. I just want to say I truly appreciate that wonderful intro, and you certainly have a very extensive amount of knowledge. I'm impressed. <laughs> I try. I try. I mean, so much material, so many guests. Sometimes I feel like I've only retained a fraction of it, but <laughs> I'm uh, hanging in there. But I am super excited for this one. I've heard your interviews with both the Conspiracy Farm and Tinfoil Hat, 
read both of your books, and I'm just very impressed with what you've decided to make your expertise. And one of the things I like most is how, even though the stories we have of things like the Anunnaki engineering, Enki and Enlil, the Sumerian king list, and these more well-known fragments of what's been found, they sound very fantastical, but you reiterate often how you want to make the case for these things using the best evidence you can, and we probably have more evidence than people realize. To kick this off with a quote from the stage of time, you say, Cultures across the world have left behind extensive evidence in ancient texts, monuments, and megalithic structures explaining that long ago, advanced civilizations once existed on the earth that were eventually destroyed by devastating global cataclysms. These lost civilizations understood the secrets of energy, consciousness, mathematics, and even the nature of reality. As I began studying ancient history in the universe, I came to discover that so much of what I was learning about was being deliberately hidden and suppressed from the public. This prompted me to ask the question of why all this information was being kept secret. That answer has fundamentally changed my life forever and sent me down the long road of discovering what the truth is. And that is a great place to start. If we focus on the tablets and writings, tell the people a bit about how much we actually have and where we see it intentionally being suppressed. Okay, that's a great quote. I appreciate that. Certainly covers a wide umbrella of different areas to talk about. So like you just mentioned, we'll start with talking about these cuneiform tablets and how extensive the evidence is for what this story is, this lost story of our past. And one of the things I want to start by bringing up, I guess, is that a couple of years ago, when a lot of those individuals like myself that are trying to uncover what this lost history is by reading these tablets, reading other ancient texts from around the world, and then looking at these megalithic structures left behind from these lost civilizations and trying to put that into a narrative and a timeline to understand both our past as well as how sophisticated we were and the influences that led to our rise and subsequently fall and then rise again over and over again in these cycles. And one of the things that really startled me when I was studying these tablets, just reading them, going through and reading things like the Atrahasis and the myth of Adapa and Eridu Genesis and many, many others, was that there's this misconception that had developed rampant, I guess you could say, online, where the terms, you know, Anunnaki and basically talking about ancient kings and genetic creation of Neanderthals and Denisovians to create a, the homo sapien that we see today, all those things, there was this rumor going around that none of it was in any of these tablets and that researchers like Zechariah Sitchin had made up all of those terms and that none of it was real. And I remember that was going on at the time that I was studying these tablets. And it became apparent to me that if we didn't really bring the facts back into light, this incredible story, our story, could be lost forever. And so I was going online and trying to create posts and doing videos and telling as many people as I could that, listen, these ancient tablets have been translated since the late 1800s by some of the greatest Assyriologist experts in the world that learned how to read what is you know, known as Sumerian cuneiform tablets is, that is a dead language. It had been dead for thousands of years. And we had these really incredible 
serologist researchers, the best in the world, that came along, starting with George Smith and later verified by Stephanie Daly from University of Oxford. And one of the startling things that came out of when I actually studied those tablets that they had translated way before Zechariah Sitchin, not to say that he got it all right or anything like that, but one of the, one of the things that did come up was I would read things like the Atrahasis and it would mention all of these incredible terms that were going around the internet as rumors saying none of them were true, talking in great detail about these sky gods, the Anunnaki, and the conversations that they had over the creation of man and how it became unbalanced and they wanted to destroy it. And all of these stories about great kings and kingdoms rising and empires and all of these things, they were all in those tablets. And as I started to dig into them, I quickly realized that there was this incredible lost story that really needed to be known. And I guess that's how we got to the point we're at today. Hmm. That is a good summary. And I've had guests who maybe are on the more extreme side who have claimed that our primary sources for history are quite sparse, that Vatican monks and archivists have made up a lot of that history out of whole cloth. And I know you're vocal about the manipulation of history, but not in this same way. What can we say about that manipulation and the fact that we probably do have a, a good amount of seemingly untainted material, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to back up just a little bit from where I was just discussing with you a second ago, this really all began in 1849. This entire understanding of this early story that was, I guess you could say, unaltered for the most part, that at least as old as we could possibly get. Really, when you want to know the truth of something, you have to go to the oldest source. Now, someone argue and say, well, Matt, how can you claim that just because something's old doesn't mean it wasn't altered? Well, there is some clues to that when we actually study different versions of these tablets. So let's go back and start from the beginning. For those who don't know, in 1849, the greatest library that had ever been amassed in the world, even greater than the later library of Alexandria in Egypt, was known as the Ashurbanipal Library, which was found in the ancient city of Nineveh, Iraq, which is today known as Iraq. During that time period, great empires had emerged, and in this case, that Nineveh and the Ashurbanipal Library and the King Ashurbanipal was part of the Assyrian Empire. And Ashurbanipal was an absolutely incredible individual throughout history, and I hope that someday these true heroes of our time are recognized and not just become these footnotes in a very antiquated and largely incorrect timeline that we're told where everything in human civilization emerged roughly 6,000 years ago out of the Fertile Crescent, and then the pyramids of Giza were built by the pharaohs of Egypt, and that whole story we've been given is very antiquated and has a lot of holes in it. And that's where these tablets come in because when this library, this Ashurbanipal library was found in 1849 by Austin Henry Laird, they had come down from the University of Oxford in England and they were at these archaeological digs uncovering what they thought were going to be clay pots and bricks and just these basic building blocks of a civilization and they found something very different. They found this massive library of cuneiform tablets. And for those who don't know, cuneiform tablets are etched in stories 
into clay that are then baked to preserve them for thousands and thousands of years. And those stories, because they're etched into clay, have the ability to not be as weathered. It's a brilliant form of writing, a brilliant form of writing style. And so Ashurbanipal was this king of Nineveh who had realized the importance of what was in these tablets. And this is the most mind-blowing thing. He states in his writings when he discusses these that he was an, a high priest, not just a king that had become a king because of bloodlines and he was ruling because he just was allowed to. He was actually a high priest that had a lot of knowledge. And he realized the significance of these tablets. And he states that during his time of accumulating this great library, these tablets were already ancient hmm. and lost in all of these sites around Mesopotamia. And so he sent his army out to every corner of Mesopotamia to all these ancient sites in what is today, you know, Iran and Iraq and Syria, all the way through this region. And they amassed this incredible library, which became known as the Ashurbanipal Library. And in that library, Austin Henry Laird had uncovered 30,000 cuneiform tablets that were then brought up to University of Oxford. And then, as I mentioned later, several years later, George Smith was the first person to actually translate them. And the Epic of Gilgamesh was the first one ever translated. But what's important about that is some people are going to say, well, how does that prove that they're genuine? Well, when you look at the versions in the Ashurbanipal Library and you study them, you find out that the oldest versions that we have, they're what are known as the Sumerian versions, but there are also Babylonian versions. And you see that when you look at stories like the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian version of the Enuma Elish versus the Assyrian, well, it wasn't Assyrian, it was originally Sumerian, but the Assyrians found it and then kept it in their library. But essentially, that version greatly differed from the Babylonian version. And when you do a little studying into Babylon, you find out that the patron god of the Babylonians was this god named Marduk, or also known as Bel. And in that version, where he's the patron god, he's the one who gets credit for the creation of mankind, not his father Enki from the older versions. So what I'm trying to say is there are different versions even of these cuneiform tablets where they state different things in them. Because really, if you wanted your legacy to be preserved and you wanted to be remembered, you'd want to be the great hero of our story, right? So you would create your own versions of it to muddy the waters. So really what this gets down to is we have to find the earliest version of these ancient writings and then cross-reference them to later versions to find out what was changed to try to understand this whole thing. And that's the same with Gnostic writings, Egyptian writings, Hindu writings. It doesn't really matter. As long as you get the most early version and have the best translations and do like a cross-reference, you can separate it out what might be, you know, manipulation later on. Like a lot of modern religion took many of these stories and woven them into things like the Bible. And we have a very clouded very uh, deceptive view a lot of a lot of our past because of what later happened. Mm, great points. You have a real clarity to this pretty complex stuff. And these ancient tablets and this ancient story, they're certainly on the minds of the elite. Even recently during the war in Iraq, the Baghdad Museum was one of the first things hit and the actions of ISIS have been pretty devastating to the ancient sites that would be most important to reconstruct in the past. And, of course, people have a lot of questions about who controls ISIS. But regardless, when 
you understand the material to the degree that you do, why is suppressing it so important to the power structure of today? So we had an ancient society before a series of cataclysms destroyed everything. So what? Why is this information, say, a threat to the power structures of today? Well, really, that entire story, that narrative, we can trace back to where it began, and then I can essentially explain what the purpose of it was. Sure. When the Roman, the Roman Empire was collapsing, the Eastern Roman Empire eventually turned into what became known as the Holy Roman Empire. And that occurred around 313 AD by this individual named Constantine. And Constantine, with, I guess you could call him his handlers, realized that the smartest way to control a society would be to control the narrative and control the past. There's a lot of famous quotes that talk about that is, you know, those who don't learn from the past are destined to repeat it and various other variations of that. But basically, like you said, what does it matter if you control the past? How does that change anything? Well, it changes basically everything because when you start to look into these tablets and you try to put a timeline for when these civilizations existed and you get into a lot more details. You start studying the structures they left behind. You start studying the technology and the knowledge they had. Instead of finding this very linear version like we've been told by mainstream experts that knowledge was slowly disseminated and then here we are at the peak of it all, it's actually the complete opposite. We have actually fallen from a time of a great height of knowledge back to this point of being, I would even call it almost like a primitive mindset of being very unbalanced compared to what a lot of the ancient cultures understood. And so Constantine realized, hey, we really need to do something about this ancient history aspect of humanity or we're not going to be able to control the narrative and control religion which is what they eventually did is the roman empire ended up adopting christianity which had previously been illegal and they were killing people over being christians they adopted christianity and at that point you saw these religious texts become greatly rewritten and the entire narrative became you could even say perverted it wasn't just that it was inverted but it was actually it took these certain terms and we're going to get into them, things like the serpent, things like the caduceus symbol and things like the swastika and a lot of these later symbols by these Romans and then the Nazis and, and a lot of other later cultures took these ancient symbols and these ancient terms that had once meant very important things and inverted them to their opposite meaning. And so we exist in this reality today where it's very difficult for people to accept a lot of this information because we've been so conditioned around having a certain value that's been given to us for everything in life. How we feel about a certain thing is essentially told to us for how we should feel. You know, when we think of something like the eagle or the serpent, which we're going to get into, these famous symbols, people automatically have this picture that just comes into their mind and this definition that comes up for what those symbols represent. And it was a very clever thing. They ended up rewriting the entire narrative, but it wasn't just rewriting it. What they did, and we'll get into this as we go along, was that they actually went around and crusaded through these ancient civilizations and they found any example that was a pre-Christian writing and they essentially burned it, destroyed it, or like the Vatican archives, which is in Italy, 
the beginning of Rome, they confiscated a lot of those ancient texts from around the world from various conquering and they kept them, the ones that didn't go along with this narrative, they just put them in a vault underground. And for those who don't believe that, I highly recommend they look into the Vatican archives. It's so obvious when you look at this stuff that it's a conspiracy, that it's almost screaming at you. But the first step to take, Greg, is to be able to accept that we've been lied about a lot of these things and we have to go back and start over again in many cases and try to understand what was being said all along. Yes, yes, man. It seems like from year one, they were pretty efficient at controlling and distorting the story, but more material surfaced, like in the 1840s, as you mentioned. And of course, today with the internet, it's a bit too out there to really keep a lid on if people were only interested enough to explore it. And that's kind of the, the weird irony is like, how much suppression do they need when people are really not that concerned with this kind of stuff, sadly. But this is a bit of a tangent. Let me also just ask you about energy real quick. We've talked to many guests who think the pyramids were part of an electromagnetic energy grid or even a consciousness elevator of some kind using the ley lines of the earth to draw up energy for a global civilization or, you know, maybe both. But it feels highly speculative and a bit like romanticizing of the ancient past. We know from megalithic sites that they were clearly more technologically advanced than the mainstream would suggest, but I struggle with the idea that there was ever really a world not built on top-down abusive power, and I want it to be true, but what do you see as the best evidence that this was actually the case at some point, that it wasn't always about manipulation of the masses and top-down control in this caste system that we're so used to, at least in this round of human history? Well, the first term I guess we can bring up is the ancients called these lost civilizations the time period that they existed, which is well beyond 10,000 years ago, and we can get into that. They called that age the Golden Age because it represented this time period that was very, very different than it is now where corruption wasn't nearly as rampant and civilizations were actually built on completely different morals than they are now. You brought up the fact that here we are in an open internet time period where people can go and search for whatever they want, but they're more interested in reality shows in most cases and looking at something violent rather than learning about something that could completely change their lives. That has to do with the conditioning mentality of how society has been pushed a certain direction to view things. And in most cases, people don't even know that this information even exists because the trick is that you, you only need to do so much suppression on this information before most people get it into their minds that it's not real. I mean, why is that? Well, today we think that information and historically, we think that information should come from these mainstream experts, these individuals at the very top of academia who are supposed to tell us what's real and we're just the masses and we should just listen. Well, that aspect of academia and those experts became very corrupted later on. You could say after this violent period of the Younger Dryas where human civilizations had to reemerge and restart themselves again, you saw a lot of really corrupted elements come into our societies where certain powerful individuals in secret societies realized that 
hey, we can completely control society and the entire message through these different means. And basically, when we try to go back to a time period that didn't exist, that's where we find all of these writings. That's one of the pieces of the evidence behind how we know that those civilizations weren't like that because they left behind extensive records where they discussed the moral values that existed in their society and how we're just a very corrupted version of those. Now, another great piece of evidence that really proves it, if that doesn't do enough, is that when you look at what a civilization based itself on, the values it based on, you look at what was left behind from them, right? So if we were to get wiped out today, right? Massive comet slammed into North America and caused a dust cloud around the world, the volcanoes went off and we all wiped out. What would we be remembered by? Well, they would find a ton of plastic. They'd find all kinds of things that sort of distract us and take us away from the earth, understanding consciousness, the universe. It seems like we have all these technological things that just distract us, to just keep us occupied with these different little games that are fun on little tablets and all these things that just keep our time occupied rather than us sitting there and scratch your head and being like, I'm sort of bored. I want to pick up a book or I want to go on some internet journey down a rabbit hole to uncover these facts. What you find is that ancient civilizations didn't have that structure. And how we know that? Well, instead of finding those things like I mentioned, we find they built incredibly sophisticated structures that were perfectly tuned to different energies of the earth and certain harmonic frequencies that had to do with connecting to higher states of human consciousness and the energy of the earth. We also find that those structures were so sophisticated in their building style that in some ways we can't even build them today. And that tells you that they had certain values that are very different than what we share today. Another good example is most of the civilizations around the world that we can identify as being part of these lost civilizations, these ancient civilizations that had the knowledge that was eventually lost. Most of them had these astronomical temples where they were basically representations of the heavens, the different constellations, and in some cases, even the planets of our solar system. And these cultures were obsessed with mapping the different zodiac ages and the procession of the equinoxes and all these aspects. That was their focus. They understood the importance of these devastating cycles that come through and the significance that they had to play with their time here was to create structures that would maybe allow them to continue and survive and continue to the next epoch instead of getting destroyed and having to start over again. So we find evidence for those civilizations having different morals based on what they built, the writings they left behind, what they said in those writings along with the types of structures that they wanted to make. And we can, of course, get into the Great Pyramid and energy as well. But I just wanted to get essentially your take on that. Yeah, I love it, man. I think you're making a lot of great points. If we had it once, maybe we can have it again. That would be a big reason to suppress it. And I think many of us feel quite overdue for a new golden age. But I guess, yes, tell us a little bit more about the pyramids or, you know, the, the network of pyramids. They're far beyond just Egypt and your thoughts on them before we dive into the uh, eagle and serpent threads that are quite interesting. 
Okay, absolutely. Now, the first thing to get across, for those who don't know, and I'm sure most people listening know this, but for those who don't, it's a good place to start. When you're in school and you pick up the Rockefeller history book of our past, this rewritten version of telling us what's real and what's not, we find that, and this is shared by most of the mainstream, which is starting to finally erode now, they tell us that the pyramids of the world, anywhere, it doesn't matter where it is, but especially in Egypt, they tell us that pyramids were built so that when a great king or a pharaoh dies, he could be buried there. Sort of like if you go to a cemetery and you see those large stone, almost like a bunker structure for someone who's really wealthy and wants to be buried in there. That's what we're told. And people accept that very, very quickly. They think, okay, these are powerful individuals. They had unlimited resources. They could do whatever they wanted, right? Except for the fact that there's never been a pharaoh found in any of the pyramids of Giza in history. And that's a very shocking thing, though, because it proves that they weren't built for that reason. Well, some people listening will be like, well, how does that prove anything if they haven't found them? That just means they haven't found them yet. Well, no, actually, we know that all of the pharaohs of Egypt, the pre-dynastic pharaohs and the dynastic pharaohs, and we can get into that, what that means, they were all buried in the same place. They had this designated burial zone place location called the Valley of the Kings. And it was over 400 miles south of the Great Pyramids of Giza. So this location, these sarcophagi that are all found in these different locations in the Valley of the Kings, we have all of the pharaohs we're looking for. They're there. They're accounted for. Khufu. And yet, the Great Pyramid of Giza is called Khufu's Pyramid. He's never been found in there. There's no writings inside Khufu's this pyramid that state that Khufu built it, none of that exists except that it was a way where if you have a timeline that only goes out 6,000 years for sophisticated human civilization, you have to try to fit it in there somewhere, don't you? So you go, okay, well, when did the dynastic Egyptians live? And they did live during that time period of around 4,000 BC. So then, okay, we'll just label Khufu as the one who built this, and then that way we can put it into this little model that everybody will just accept. Well, once people learned that Khufu was never found in there, and there's no evidence that Khufu ever even built it, and more importantly, we know that he didn't build it because of the type of technology that was done in the Great Pyramid. In the Great Pyramid of Giza, there are different shafts that point towards different constellations, such as Sirius and Orion. And above those chambers, well above the desert, over 100 feet up, are these megalithic blocks that are more than 50 tons. Perfect granite blocks above the king's chamber that have been built and situated in there by an ancient, ancient culture. And Khufu's time period of the dynastic pharaohs had none of the technology that would even allow building even small pyramids, let alone these magnificent structures. Now, okay, so getting past that, we know they're ancient and they're older. So what's their purpose, right? Mm -hmm. When we travel around the world and we look at any of these sites that have this megalithic advanced technology used to make them, seeing drill hole marks, seeing saw cuts on some of these blocks that were so hard they would have been impossible during the time period that we're told to be carved. They are found in these certain locations around the world. 
but they're very specific locations. For instance, take in South America, the Tiwanaku area, the area around Lake Titicaca, okay? That region is very inhospitable to live. It's found at over 12,000 feet elevation. There's no trees. Winds just whip across the landscape. It's a very difficult place to live. And yet, some of the most advanced structures we know about were built there. Why? Well, if you look at each one of these ancient areas where it was built around the world, and you compare to these energetic vortex convergence zones, which are part of the Earth. See, the Earth is not really the way that we've been given this perception of it to being this lifeless rock that sort of floats through space and revolves around the sun. There's a lot of other things going on there. For instance, the Earth has its own energetic field that's created through basically magnetism. And it has a magnetic north and a magnetic south pole. And the entire Earth is balanced through these energy centers. And those energy convergent areas are known as ley lines. And they represented the places where energy, the ability to harness energy and manipulate it is at its greatest. And so we find that these structures all around the world are built very close to them, not on them. And that's evidence for what happened to them, though. That's one of the, my favorite things when I look at is because when you take a ley line map and you plot all these locations around the world, you see they're all off by this certain degree. All of them around the world are all off. And you find that when you go to these astronomical temples like Gobekli Tepe or Menorca, you look at the way they're aligned and you find that they're all off by about 23 degrees from magnetic north, magnetic north-south. They're all off-aligned. The same thing is true if you try to align those, what we're told as air shafts in the Great Pyramid of Giza to like constellations such as, you know, Canis Major and Orion, they don't line up anymore. They're all off by a certain degree. And what that tells us is those structures were originally intended to be built on those ley lines, but because of disastrous events in the past that shifted those poles and shifted where those ley lines line up now and those lost civilizations were completely wiped out and we have evidence of their structures being you know melted and burned and strewn all over the place we know that there were very very violent cataclysms that basically destroyed these civilizations and even had a potentially like a pole shift in our past that led to us having to start over again and understand all the things that they already knew. Hmm. Yeah, man, I love this. The earth grid shifted and maybe it all powered down and possibly it relates to inevitable cycles of rise and fall that people always talk about. It seems to be some kind of spiritual thing that's baked into our reality and it affects our consciousness and the levels of consciousness in which we can achieve and the ease or difficulty in cultivating those higher levels. It is all fascinating stuff. And to dive into the eagle and serpent thread, this is one of the most fascinating things to me. I love the implications of the Anunnaki material, the Enki and Enlil story, and this idea that we were engineered to do the work of the gods, give the Ajiji a break. And Maybe all of that ancient stuff is still a big part of where we are now in this context might be a missing piece 
of so much of what's gone on in history. And that's a setup to maybe get into these symbols of the eagle and the serpent. Let me read another quote from the book where you say, On a somewhat linear level, the eagle and serpent can be equated to masculine strength and control over the physical world versus following a path of spiritual growth and obtaining higher knowledge. However, these symbols have much deeper meanings that can be traced back to some of the earliest texts ever written. In many ways, the eagle and serpent represent the divide that exists between the material third-dimensional world and the non-physical spiritual realms. I love it, man. We are deep in it now. Can you tell the people a bit more about these two symbols and what that bigger story might be? Yeah, sure. Everybody always loves this this the most. I think the story of Enki and Enlil and the eagle and the serpent is one of the most profound because it connects to so many things in our lives and even today. So I guess we had to go back a little bit for those who don't know or to expand on this area a little bit. There are extensive tablets that tell us the human origin story, whether or not you want to read it in the Atrahasis, in the Enuma Elish, or the myth of Adapa, and countless other cuneiform tablets. This story that comes up is basically a story about a power struggle here that essentially boils it down. There's a group of beings, sky gods they call them, that came here. They state they came here and they wanted to create an infrastructure for a civilization. And like you mentioned, in the Ajiji were considered this lower status being, but still a god like them. And they eventually revolted and they decided that they would create this human race based on the compatibility that the hominids on the planet already had with them. And so essentially, like the myth of Adapa states, they played around and Enki eventually created this being that we are disseminated from now, but it originally was almost like a perfect being originally. This being that some biblical references to call Adam or Adapa in ancient texts, this being was perfect in the beginning, but it wasn't supposed to be. The idea in the tablets was that Enlil and Enki, which are brothers, got dual ownership over this realm here. They were both in charge of maintaining it, and they took different roles within that governing structure. Okay, so Enki... This master mastermind, basically greatest of the Anunnaki in terms of understanding the cosmos and, and everything, he decided to create this worker that Enlil had asked to be created in Anu. But instead of, like I said, instead of just being a primitive worker, he created this perfect being. Well, this is where this great divide began. When you read... The Secret Book of John in the Nag Hammadi scriptures, which is a Gnostic text that came out of a cave along the Nile River in 1945, 1944-1945, it states that essentially some of these beings, these Anunnaki, became greatly threatened by this perfect being that Enki had created in their image, and that was us. And because of that jealousy over the fact that we could become potentially greater than them someday— since we are in many ways them, because that's how our genetics were eventually created, through sacrificing this god, Kingu, who was basically the head of the Ujiji, to create mankind, 
these two brothers that had dual ownership became greatly divided over how they wanted humanity to be run and how they wanted our future to be. And these two symbols really get down to a lot of different levels, okay? Picture, if you will, a complete polarity of two beings. One of them loves us because he created us. He fell in love with his creation and wants us to advance and become our true potential in life. And the way to do that is to not conquer the physical world, but to understand what ancient cultures have told us all along. This triptech doorway that you see all around the world of these ancient sites, those doors that you see, the three doors, it's representing three things that religion later corrupted. It's the idea of this connection and this crossing of mind, body, and soul. The three aspects that can turn us into our highest potential, okay? But the body, to be this vessel that we're in, to house consciousness, it has to be in balance with each other. The mind, body, and soul must be in balance to be able to reach higher states. But because that blueprint is known, the idea was that Enlil and others who were jealous, like I mentioned in the secret book of John, this Yaldabaoth figure who is really jealous over this Adapa early man, he even states in that, and I encourage people to go read that, he states in that that because of that jealousy, mankind was thrown into the lowest form of matter possible. So you have this being that has all these divine properties that are connected to the Anunnaki. And instead of existing in a state where we can alchemically change our environment and create things out of our own imagination, we're thrown in this world of chaos, of war and division and constant distraction and deception that keep us in these lower states. And so basically what these symbols really represent is this divide that emerged between Enki and Enlil in how human civilizations and that collective of humanity would turn out, how they would be governed, how the values that would make up their society would be governed, okay? And so what you find, and it completely blew my mind when I was able to connect these things and study them, it really is one of those moments where you sit outside and you go, oh my God, it makes so much sense. When you look around the world at empires throughout history, any civilization that was based on conquering, it doesn't matter if you want to go from the Romans to the Nazis to the Soviets and eventually even the United States, this conquering mentality always followed with a flag or a crest of an eagle. Always. Okay? Yeah. Every time. But yet, we're told and it's thrust down our throats subconsciously, it seems like on a daily basis, that the eagle is this symbol of freedom and balance and being a state, a society where you have all the values of a perfect system, right? And then we're told that the serpent, the symbol of the, the serpent and the dragon are these evil, evil symbols and they represent basically deception and evil and all these things. And quickly you realize that those symbols have been completely turned on their head. They've been completely inverted. And the story of these civilizations and empires tells that story so well. And so what it gets down to, for those who haven't connected yet, Enki's symbol, all the way back from the beginning, 
they actually had multiple symbols, but one of the main symbols that he was referenced with was the serpent and also the dragon. Meanwhile, Enlil had this symbol of the eagle. Now, what did that what does that mean, right? People come up to me and they're like, Matt, I really love eagles. Does that mean I, I have to stop enjoying watching them fly over my head? And I tell them, no, of course not. These symbols have nothing to do with these creatures. It has to do with representing certain things. For instance, an eagle is the highest flying bird of all, okay? And the eagle is known to swoop down and attack its prey. So those types of symbols became what was used to represent the different mentalities. For instance, in Egypt, there was an ancient god there known as Thoth, and he had the head of an ibis. But that wasn't a literal thing. He didn't really have the head of an ibis. That was just a symbol to show him being this patient teacher of mankind. And that's how a lot of these symbols became woven into a lot of these ancient murals and cylinder seals where they show these representations of these Anunnaki individuals. Some of them have eagle heads. Some of them have regular human heads. Some of them have other kinds of heads as well. And they all represent these symbols. Now, Enlil and his sons like Ninurta and others, they developed this great rift, this great divide between these beings over how we would be governed. Like I said, some were jealous over us reaching higher states and some of them wanted us to reach higher states. And so what you find is that ancient cultures all around the world, from North and South America, for instance, in the Maya, the god of the Maya that gave them wisdom and knowledge of the heavens, not blood sacrifice and war, which we can get into, but the one that gave them knowledge of the heavens and balance of the earth, that god was known as Kukulkan, and he was a great serpent dragon god. Down to the south in the Aztec, their great wisdom god that brought them knowledge of the heavens was known as Quetzalcoatl, and it was another serpent dragon god. Same thing, okay? And then we get down into South America, and we find that there's another serpent dragon god down there called Amaruka or Amaru. And then we go across into Egypt and we see the pre-dynastic pharaohs and even some of the dynastic pharaohs with a serpent on their forehead representing knowledge. And then in, we get over into India. We see this worship of this kundalini serpent. And then in Japan and China, we see an ancient worship of the dragon. But then later on, all those cultures get either corrupted or conquered. And then we see this other symbol start to emerge, and it's the symbol of the eagle. <laughs> and one of the things that it was most telling to me, and I encourage people if they're ever able to travel to see this, but a very popular site known as Chichen Itza in the Mayan Yucatan area, you walk around, you see Kukulkan's temple, which with the serpents that represent the knowledge at the bottom and the staircase leading up the top, and everyone's staring at that, and that's amazing, right? But there's other things there that most people never see. And I remember being there and having studying this information and looking for clues about if it's remained in these cultures in other places as well. And I didn't really expect what I was going to find snooping around on a day where it was almost 100 degrees and there's all kinds of tourists snapping pictures. There's this area called the Temple of the Jaguars that's off to the side and people just walk by it. They don't care. Walk right by it. And I remember standing there and being like amazed and looking at it and 
none of this army of tourists were looking at it. Nobody cared. But what I saw on it that really blew my mind, knowing what I had known and looking for these symbols, was that here you had Kukukan, the symbols of Kukukan with essentially looked like a god human with snakes all emanating from him. And he was there, and it was this basically this representation of a story woven into the rock. They had carved the story out of these symbols. And Kukukan is there with all the serpents in it. But then Later, down in this progression of these stories and the symbol, there's this eagle, and he's got a human heart, or also known as the seed of knowledge as well. It depends on how you want to interpret that symbol. He's eating it. He's eating this, either the seed of knowledge or human heart, as some have called it, in his mouth. Now, what do we find with the Mayan Aztec cultures? They were eventually corrupted. And they turned into warring empires that were sacrificing thousands of people to these dark arts. And people quickly jump all over the fact that Kukukan and Quetzalcoatl were the ones that then corrupted them. But it doesn't make any sense because when you read Mayan codexes and you go into ancient Aztec writings, you find that, no, these Quetzalcoatl and Kukukan gods firmly state in those writings that they're very much against those practices. And that they actually had left these cultures and that there was other influences that came later. And so quickly what I found around the world was that it wasn't just that these symbols were representing just knowledge versus conquering, but they were even getting as deep as some of the influences of what I believe were the Anunnaki influencing these cultures in certain ways. And I just want to bring up one more quick thing, Greg. When I was studying, well, who was this blood sacrifice god of the Maya? And in the stage of time, I extensively talk about this. I found that there was this god named God El in the Maya, who was the one that they were talking all about and connecting with these symbols of war and blood sacrifice. And this god El, it didn't have the symbol of the serpent of the dragon. It had the symbol of the eagle and the jaguar. That's why the area I mentioned was called the Temple of the Jaguars, because the story that was most echoed later was this corrupted story of this eagle that had corrupted all these cultures and woven its way in. And I then said, okay, well, then God El has a symbol of the eagle and the jaguar, and it's the god of death and war. What kind of Sumerian god had those symbols? And you find that there's a god known as Nergal which was one of the sons of Enlil, who became a god of the underworld, of death though, not of knowledge and reincarnation, but of death. And it starts to all connect with this story about how there are so many influences and so many things going on behind the scenes that we don't fully understand that it became the framework for why I called my second book The Stage of Time. Because it's like we're on this stage here this stage of expression and we're all playing different roles, but we're like actors on a stage. They're all being puppeteered to have a certain type of outcome based on these two different sides. And I just want to mention one more thing. It can get as deep into as talking about bloodlines as well. And I know that people want me to mention that because Enki and Enlil ended up having sexual relations with human women because they were supposedly so incredibly beautiful. 
And those bloodlines became known as the serpent bloodline and the eagle bloodlines. And that's the other reason why these civilizations were fighting so much over what bloodline and what mentality would rule them. Because these symbols and what they represent, they cover so many different levels of understanding that they ultimately became duality in our reality. Okay. Either the serpent, which is knowledge and spiritual connection to the feminine energy of creation, or this masculine energy of conquering our world and destroying everything. That's what these two things really represent. And these gods, essentially these Anunnaki gods, because they were so divided, these two symbols came to basically represent nearly every ancient civilization up until our present. <laughs> wow, man. Yes. This really resonated with me. I do love trying to unpack deceptions and inversions and just to add some layers to this real quick. First thing I was thinking about is how we have the weird story in evolution that the dinosaurs, the reptiles became birds. It's just a weird thing. But we also, as you mentioned earlier, we demonize the elite as reptilians. And maybe even that's a distortion because they seem way more aligned with the eagle. And I copied this down from your book, but you say, even in Greek mythology, the god Poseidon with his three-pronged trident is frequently connected to the symbol of the serpent, while his counterpart, Zeus, is connected with the symbol of the eagle. Both of these Greek gods were likely incarnations or personas of the earlier Mesopotamian gods played by Enki and Enlil. Evidence for this can be seen in the various depictions and statues of Enki, which clearly portray him holding a trident, one of his most cherished symbols. That's why it's so fascinating to discover that the religious entity known as Satan or the devil is almost always shown as an evil being from hell who is wielding a pitchfork. But was he really evil or is there more to the story? An objective analysis of the evidence reveals that the pitchfork is clearly the inversion of Enki and his trident representing the role he eventually took on in the underworld. And that's amazing. In the book, you also go on to tie it into St. Patrick driving the quote-unquote snakes out of Ireland, a.k.a. the Druids, you know, and we can look at certain entities by their fruits. Whatever the Vatican is worshiping is a dark, dark thing. So even today, it's like if you get confused by who's aligned with which symbol, just look at their actions. And I definitely don't want to be associated with whatever the Vatican's worshiping. And it also manifests in a strange way. Even today, obviously, the American empire utilizes the eagle. But then we have that sort of libertarian rebel flag that's barely in use anymore. That's basically just a poorly drawn snake and the saying, don't tread on me. I mean, bam, it's right there again. So I'm not sure how much of this is conscious, even though people tend to drift towards using these symbols even after centuries. What would you say about that interplay between the conscious and subconscious when it comes to the use of this imagery? Is there an aspect of how the influences of higher realms manifest into the physical? Like, what are your thoughts on that interplay and the mechanics of how these things end up still being a big part of life? Yeah, that was well said, Greg. I appreciate that. Let me expand on a couple of those things. Evidence for connecting this so people understand. One of the oldest pieces we have 
is a cuneiform tablet called the Legend of Atana. Okay. Now, Atana was considered the first king. This is what it states in the tablets. He was considered the first king after the deluge, after this new civilization would emerge out of the ashes of its former self. He was chosen, which is what he states in the tablet, to be the shepherd or the architect of the new world, which is mind-blowing to think about. It wasn't just that he was the shepherd of just his kingdom. No, it actually states that the city that he would rule over, known as Kish, which some of those ruins are still around today, would be the very first city that was built and created after these events destroyed everything. Now, what's important about that is that connected all the eagle and the serpent. In the later part of the tablet, he goes on to explain in this very well, I guess this parable, this symbolic metaphorical type of way he goes on to describe how the system we have here in terms of duality was created and he states that there was this eagle who had this half brother who is the serpent and the eagle basically comes along and it asks him if they could be friends if they could work together and the serpent reluctantly agrees and states that it would work with him as long as it didn't betray him and was always true. And as you go along, it states that the eagle ended up completely betraying the serpent and went to reside up in heaven. And the serpent was forced, it says, and tricked to reside down in the underworld or below, taking on these certain roles in reality. Mm-hmm. It's really mind-blowing for us to even wrap our heads around how something like that could happen. But it makes a lot of sense, though, if you think about the idea of if there are higher and lower dimensions in different realms to our reality, and we only perceive largely one dimension, the third dimension, the physical world, that's what is most of our representation of what reality is. But there are all these different realms and dimensions, aspects of our reality that we can't perceive. And they have to do with energy cycles and Things like reincarnation and ascension and all of these different aspects of what the ancients told us. Well, in that tablet and in other places, it states that not only were these beings in charge of them, but they literally were sent to rule over the different realms. So Enlil was given the physical world and the higher dimensions. That's why he became known as the symbol with the eagle. Because he was flying high above and essentially observing everything, higher dimensions, higher awareness, perception of everything. Whereas Enki, the serpent, was tricked into ruling in the underworld. This is how we can unfold these layers to understand them. So if Enki's tricked into ruling in the underworld, but he's the benevolent being, and then Enlil is malevolent, as above, so below, states that everything has to be balanced. That's the rule that they're obsessed with is balance. So therefore, Enlil became in control of the higher dimensions in the physical world. And Enlil was assigned to rule essentially in the underworld. Hence, Satan. Hell. So hell is essentially the underworld where death and reincarnation occurs. And heaven, or higher dimensions is essentially, that's how those religious terms came to come about. 
So Enki and his teachings were later demonized, and that's why so many of these symbols became inverted and these cultures were corrupted later on. The eagle essentially, through its cleverness, Enlil and others, realized that based on the different zodiac ages and the types of energies that were allowed and the types of polarities that they could basically rule over and conquer our entire reality. And that's how we became where we are today is that after these cataclysms occurred, some of these beings cleverly took over and we essentially became trapped in the state where spirituality and understanding higher knowledge was pushed off and almost destroyed, stamped out by these emissaries like the Roman Empire that went around and just found all of these ancient texts and rewrote the entire story. And think about how did the Roman Empire control its population through things like fear and violence with gladiator games and distractions to keep people focused on a certain type of conditioning, a certain type of mentality. And that's essentially how those individuals became referenced to who they are. And I want to point out strongly that these beings seem to have played different roles throughout different times, but I've had a hard time finding any time period where Enlil has played a positive role. It seems as though because of his jealousy and through some of the means in which we came to be, that things became very unbalanced eventually, even though they were obsessed with balance. Somehow they found a way to make it unbalanced in order to keep humanity's consciousness essentially trapped in a certain state. And we'll get into that when we get into the suppression of consciousness. But those two symbols came to truly represent this great divide that emerged within humanity over these two different paths and the different bloodlines that were associated with them. And you find that with tablets like the Atrahasis, how Atrahasis, later also known as Zayasudra in other tablets, was this great flood hero king of Shurupak, and he was warned of the great catastrophe coming because he was a bloodline of Enki. And so Enki broke the oath that Enlil had forced him to make to not tell any of humanity about this coming cyclical disaster, but he did. He warned him, and that's one of the reasons why that entire family tree lived and survived. So what you find is that these layers just expand out to so many different things of understanding the influences of the eagle and the serpent that it really represents the duality of our reality and how we ended up in a place today where, like you mentioned, the eagle has largely corrupted our world. And we exist in a state of mostly obsessiveness over the physical world and conquering and materialism and war and division and less about understanding balance with our world, understanding balance with the universe, what we really are, this spiritual being that's having a physical experience in this body, not the other way around. Hmm. And that's this great divide that emerged. Yes, man. And it is wild that when we see the symbols together, it's usually the eagle dominating the serpent. And we certainly have imbalance today. And Maybe that's why today's elite are talking so much about a great reset. It could play into that. And man, I just can't believe it has been a full hour already. You know, I will get comments that will say that with everything going on in 2020, why would I choose a topic like this? Yet, so many people are 
looking at the landscape today and seeing this as a crucial time. Maybe that's always kind of true, but we can see the scaffolding being built right now for a technocratic dystopia, the same thing we've been cautious of for years. And this idea of a fork in the road for humanity is very potent right now. And I like when you say in the stage of time, each person must decide what role they want to play, hero, villain, or where most people actually are as just extras in the background, mainly because they're just unaware of their place in the world. And how fitting we talked about the Truman Show a little bit, but what would you say to try to inspire people out of being just extras and make them see that they do have more influence and power than they might have been conditioned to believe. Yeah, and I think that really gets down to the heart of all of this. To mislead people to think that their actions and their contributions mean nothing, rather than realizing that we're all creators here. We really are. We are all here, and we have the ability to think of an idea, concept, whatever it is, and turn it into a reality. That's how we're creators here, okay? So therefore, if we're made to believe, and we absolutely are, I couldn't believe once I started to dig into ancient studies and understanding hermetic texts and what we are and how we contribute to everything, this collective here, and where that ship of collectiveness goes, I couldn't believe when I realized that everything that we do has an impact here, everything, even the smallest thing. I started to realize that that concept of quantum mechanics where the butterfly effect, the idea in chaos theory, how we can have some action take place where it can ripple out and affect so many more things than we realize because we're not able to perceive all the different ways that our actions ripple out. You know, that little stone that's thrown into the pond that maybe makes a small impact at first, but the ripples afterwards extend far beyond what those initial impacts were. But we often don't stick around or have the ability to perceive how those impacts ripple out and affect those around us. But if we were to realize that, then all of a sudden that stage, that stage of time, where we're each playing a role here, like Shakespeare says, that would all be realized. Can you imagine if people truly understood how their actions can contribute to this entire story. You know, if someone like you was to never do this podcast, you never started it, you never talked to anybody, you never did it, you just took a different path in life. How many different people would never be impacted by some of the topics you discuss on here? Some of the individuals that you bring on to expand our awareness of things and ask those important questions that need to be asked to try to ponder those answers. We have difficulty seeing the magnitude of our actions, but in reality, we're each here playing certain roles in this collective story. And in many cases, we don't even realize which role we're playing because we haven't identified the fact that we are that important enough. And we are. It's not an egotistical thing saying like, oh, humans, you know, we're the most important thing in the entire universe. That's not really what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that ancient texts state that we are very important in terms of the grand scheme of where this story of our planet and free will and consciousness goes. 
we are an experiment, they state. We're an experiment in consciousness in having the divinity of a god be in a physical mortal body that dies and that we have this grand stage being played out here that's being puppeteered by certain individuals and the game is to make us unaware that our actions really matter at all but really like i state in the book and like you mentioned a second ago the whole story revolves around the extras because that's the collective story of humanity but in between that there are these heroes and villains that are playing really important roles and once we can identify that our actions really matter and are contributing in some important way, we can assume one of those archetypes. You know, what are we going to be? How are we going to be remembered? If Greg Carlwood dies in the future, how will he be remembered? Is he going to be remembered in a positive way, in a negative way? And how are those contributions that he made, how are those going to ripple out and affect this entire story? Because really, it doesn't come down to celebrities that have millions of Twitter followers who just discuss what kind of outfits they want to wear and who they're going to vote for. That's not who's really making the difference here. It's the ones on the front lines, like you, who are pushing this paradigm forward and asking these difficult questions and identifying all of these different things that just don't make any sense with our reality and what we're told. Really makes me sad when I see the way that humanity has been governed and has been shepherded in this way where we matter not at all. And you watch some movie like Enemy at the Gates when the Soviets are just charging Stalingrad and getting mowed down like they matter nothing. They're just like an extra little animal that can be sacrificed for no reason at all. But really, when you look at it on a grand scheme of things, we are these incredible beings that are being used for all these terrible ways, and we're being manipulated to really not truly understand what we really are and how important we are to this entire story. Mm. <laughs> Cheers to that, man. I definitely thought that would be a good capstone to this whole thing, a good way to end it. And I personally oscillate between feeling like I could do more and then sometimes being satisfied with my role now and compared to the beast serving mall store retail management hellscape that I grew out of. So yeah, it's uh, it's tricky stuff, but I did really love this. So much information and you are a great example to people that they really can just pick anything that they are interested in and dive in until they're an expert and make that their bread and butter. You should definitely be proud. Thank it's you. very impressive. <laughs> yes. And before I cut you loose, tell the people where they can follow up, get in touch, and anything else you might have coming down the pike. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everyone that supports my work. I still have a full-time job. I do this because I know how important it is. And like you mentioned earlier on, people can find my work through thestageoftime.com as well as my YouTube page at Matthew LaCroix and the two books I've written, The Illusion of Us and Stage of Time, which I do have some pretty exciting announcements coming out for those. As of today, I actually have gone through an entire overhaul of The Illusion of Us, first time in quite a long time, several years, and I've released, as of today the third edition of The Illusion of Us with a lot of updates. And then as well, I'm about to release the second edition of The Stage of Time and including with that announcement will come the full audio of The Stage of Time for all of those individuals 
done professionally. For all of those individuals who don't really read that often or they don't have time and they really prefer audio, I wanted to help a lot of those individuals out by doing that. So those are just a couple announcements as well as the last thing I just wanted to state is that I'm really excited. For those who don't know, I am in the middle of writing a new book with co-writing with Billy Carson that is called The Epic of Humanity. And it is an attempt by us to preserve these ancient texts and what they state about our entire story so that it can be hopefully protected into the future so we, we don't keep losing so much of this important information. So I, I thank you so much, Greg. I, I really appreciate sitting down and having this conversation with you. Beautiful. Yes, it was a blast. And I really have enough questions left on my outline to get through a whole nother show. Maybe we run it back when the new book hits the shelves. But until then, great stuff. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thanks, bud. I appreciate it. Yes, people. <laughs> Talk about a guy who knows what he's talking about. Matt LaCroix. A highly recommended guest, and I'm happy I was finally able to get him on. His work is pretty impressive, and it is such a simple formula, too. Just learn about something you're curious about, digest it until you're a buff, write some books, do some podcasts, bada-bing, bada-boom, and you have a nice little life carved out for yourself. Not that it's easy, and it's obviously similar to what a lot of our guests have decided to do with their lives, but... I guess I'm just so impressed that he decided, hey, I'm actually going to go and read all these old tablets people talk about, multiple translations, see how it all fits together, and then I'll know for sure what I think about this. In fact, I've been doing a few rounds of interviews myself on other podcasts. In like 10 days' time, I did Grammarica, Quite Frankly, Freeman, Isaac Weishaupt's podcast, Those Conspiracy Guys, and The Cult of Nick. I appreciate them all for allowing me to come on and talk about terrain theory and all that stuff. But the point is, I run into a few people in having these conversations that will come at me with, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't know. And it's like, well, you can know if you want to. If you're not sure about something and you're curious and you think it might have merit, keep learning until you either throw it away because it wasn't what you thought or realize it has value and you know it like the back of your hand. Clearly it doesn't happen overnight, but anyone can do that with any subject or follow any particular passion. And I just appreciate Matt because he does that at a high level. His books are well written, his site is well designed, and he makes me excited about material that I'd kind of put back on the shelf for a few years. And I didn't expect to be actively interested in the Anunnaki story again so soon, like I was for this. The eagle and the serpent stuff was pretty killer too. And I think after the heavy hand of the last show we did around here, we could all use something else. But the energy around a major fork in the road for humanity is pretty potent. It seems like when we have these cosmic windows of opportunity is when we're hit with so much fear and distraction that we don't act and we lose it. But many great sources are saying that this is a big one. And I think looking at these sorts of perspectives on the past can push us towards the idea that maybe something better is possible. And just because we would appreciate a great reset doesn't mean we have to sign on to theirs, you know? <laughs> 
If you liked the first hour in the Plus show, we talked about how a person could use the more positive potent symbols once they're identified. Bloodlines, RH negative blood, and the hidden story there. Planet X, Nibiru, and separating out the disinformation. He does actually have a great image from the 1987 Science and Invention Encyclopedia on his website that shows Planet X and a binary star, which just adds to the whole angle. We also got into mysteries of the cosmos and life in the universe, the Truman Show, and the Dog Star. I had a real Sophie's choice as we were going through this interview. Do I ask him about the eagle and the serpent stuff, or do I ask him about the RH negative bloodline stuff? Because I could tell as the time was ticking, we were only going to slide one of those things into the first hour. And we have done a show about the RH negative bloodline before. It was so long ago and so popular and provocative. It was very tempting to try to throw it back in the mix, but we went eagle and serpent because obviously that was quite interesting and also new. I try to make a complete show for both the free and the plus listeners, but at the end of the day, the full two-hour interview is where it's at. But either way, this was just a good show for digging into the awe and wonder of the mysterious cosmos and what life is even about. You didn't manifest here to hate five days a week posing as an insurance salesman. Be an expert or an advocate or an artist for whatever you're driven towards. Yes, it's easy for me now to say, oh, find your thing and abundance will follow. But I can only draw off my own experience. And anyone who's followed the higher side chats from the early days would have a hard time finding some advantage that I had that makes my situation unique. I just fear, not to get into it, that the cost to participate in traditional American society is getting quite high, and I would like to see more people be independent or move in that direction. So even on a show like today, I would like to take a minute to at least put that out there, because the more control and independence you have over your own life, the more choice you have as to what level you are willing to participate. But that's for another time. I'm just hoping Matt, as an example, and the material of the day itself, inspires some of you to go for it. It's a process, but maybe this will give you a little fuel. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus on my website if you like what I do. Get the two-hour episodes, five each month, plus the joint session bonus show, the forums, a very long and robust catalog, $8, cancel anytime, but help me help you. I think we've been on a roll lately and doing a decent job of covering the spread of topics we like around here. You also get a decent list of things on the bonus content page, including all the parody songs that I end episodes with, and we got a fresh one today. Again, done in collaboration with the one and only Lauren Silva, aka Monty the Artist. I'm a big fan of the Mysterious Grays one we did a couple episodes back, and this one is just more simple and fun. I remember seeing reruns of The Greatest American Hero come on TV, and I always liked the theme song more than the actual show, and I liked it even more when it was George Costanza's answering machine, but it's also a new song for me to end the show with. Some I like to be pretty specific on, lyrically, 
but it's also good to have a few broad ones that I can fit into any episode that isn't about weather weapons or hiding out in the bunker or magic, etc., etc. So, Lauren Silva, thanks again. Big thanks to Matthew LaCroix. TheStageOfTime.com, again, is his website. And a big thanks to all of you guys who keep the faith in me and what I'm doing around here. I'll catch you next time. I've done my part. Your move, history suppressors, ancient alien engineers, and allies of the cosmos. Your fucking The truth has been hidden from me. the TV and obey Take some more pills when you're blue Or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in Together we Thank you.